Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you again. I've preached here before. I'm so glad to preach again to see familiar faces from South Shore and to see some familiar faces here at Situate and to see some new faces. So it is good to be here with you this morning. I bring you greetings from South Shore Baptist. I bring you prayers. And I'm so thankful for your faithfulness here in Situate and all along on the South Shore. This morning, I'm going to be preaching from Romans chapter 7. I didn't mention this. Most of you probably know this. But in case you didn't know, my name is Steve Grissom, associate pastor at South Shore Baptist Church. I'm going to be preaching from Romans chapter 7 this morning, verses 14 through 25. When I mentioned this passage to a friend of mine, he said, Who chose this passage? I sheepishly said, Me? So I don't know if that was a wise choice or not. That remains to be seen. But what is not in question is the goodness of God here in Romans 7. Romans 7 is a familiar chapter to most of us here this morning. But just because it's familiar doesn't mean that it's not beneficial for us. So Romans 7 is a chapter full of questions. Five questions, in fact, throughout the chapter. Questions that kind of prod our thinking. It's like Paul is leading us to a point. And so these questions are for our good. Questions are important. You and I have asked plenty of questions in our lifetime. I've been asked the question, why do I do what I don't want to do? Why do I do what I hate? I'm I'm sure you've been asked similar questions before. They're thoughtful questions. They're reflective questions. They are what counselors call x-ray questions. They take a look deeper inside. Well, while the questions of chapter 7 may sound discouraging to the one asking the question, they actually reveal a level of maturity and vulnerability. I know when my children ask questions, sometimes, oftentimes, they are deeper than ones that I'm anticipating. Like this past week, um, when my 11-year-old asked a question and I returned with, responded with, I'll get back to you on that. Or, let's ask John Piper. Or, um, we'll ask someone else more smarter, more wise. And so, questions are good and they are going to help us this morning. Well, my aim this morning is to equip you in the battle against sin. Do you need help battling sin this morning? I know that I do. Recently, someone told me they hate to hear about sin. Well, I can understand that, and it can be depressing to talk about sin, but sin is a reality. But we must not talk about sin in isolation, though. If we were only talking about sin this morning, it would be discouraging, it would be depressing, and it would be overwhelming. But as we talk about sin and as we fight sin, I hope that you will see this morning that deliverance is possible. A rescue does take place because, spoiler alert, there's a rescuer. There is a rescuer. And so, um, I hope this morning that you see deliverance as possible and that knowing Christ can make a daily difference, not only in seeing your identity as God's child, that's where we're going to return at the end of our time, 
but also as we walk daily as his adopted children. So, without further ado, let's turn to our passage this morning, Romans 7, beginning in verse 14. This is what the Apostle Paul says. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I, not, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth and for how it opens our eyes. Lord, even as we see our own sin, we struggle and we become discouraged and overwhelmed. But Lord, help us not to stare at our sin. Help us not to sink in despair and to be overwhelmed with guilt and shame. But Father, help us to run to the cross to see Jesus Christ as our Savior, the one that we need. So, Father, as we think about Paul, as we think about these verses, as we try to make sense of them all, we probably will still leave with questions this morning. But one question hopefully will be answered, and that is, who is our rescuer? We know we have a rescuer, and his name is Jesus Christ. The right man is on our side, and so we have hope, an anchor for our souls. And we thank you and praise you. May you make us more like Christ this morning, we pray. Lead us by your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, mission accomplished. I got, was able to read through that passage. It is a tongue twister. And sometimes as I was reading through it, I would skip to the next verse and back to the previous verse. So we got through the passage. Check. Now let's continue on. And Romans 7 is a powerful passage, a passage you've probably read before, a passage you've probably studied before, and a passage you've probably just skipped past to the next one, to chapter 8, which we'll get there a little bit later. 
But Romans is a wonderful book and perhaps maybe even a favorite book of some here this morning. If I were to ask, maybe there would be hands that would come up saying, this is my favorite book. But when you preach through Romans, it's hard not to reference other parts of the book. So let's begin where Paul begins with Romans 1. And he begins in this way. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now here's the key phrase for us. To bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name, the name of Christ, among all nations. So these are the opening words of Romans. And they set the stage for Paul's argument. As you go through Romans, he builds and builds upon argument and discussion on the use of the law, but also here, Romans 7, on the reality of sin within the lives of believers. Now, how many of us have sinned? Now, we all would raise our hands. If you didn't raise your hand, you're a liar. So we all have the reality of sin in our lives, and Paul talks about this reality here, and I hope to guide us through this tricky section, and I'm going to do it with three questions. Three questions to guide us. These are not alliterative points. Don't tell Pastor Stephen. These are questions to guide us in this section of Romans. The first question is this. What do we know? What do we know? Paul tells us what we, what we know in verse 7. And that is the law is spiritual, good, and reveals sin. But the law can't save. So let me say that again. What do we know? The law is spiritual, Good and reveal sin, but the law can't save. So that's all a mouthful to help us understand what Paul is saying here is that the law is good, but we must understand what the law is doing. Context is key here. Paul's responding to his critics about the law. They had wondered if Paul was misusing the law. And some claim that the Mosaic law produced sin and death. Others wondered if the law itself was sinful. So Paul is not dismissing the law of God. He's not misrepresenting the law of God. He's helping us understand what the law does. And in Galatians, we see the law is a tutor, is pointing us to Christ. So Paul writes to correct assumptions and critiques of his beliefs in reference to the law. But he also writes, don't miss this, To help us understand that there is sure deliverance in Christ. That's why he's writing that there is sure deliverance in Christ. I'm going to be flipping back and forth to various parts of Romans. Earlier in chapter 6, Paul writes this. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And then a few verses later he says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. What does that mean? That means that we become more and more like Christ. That's the grace of God training us to say no to ungodliness. And its end, eternal life. So he's saying sin is not going to have dominion over you. But we say, but sin is a reality. It's still present. And Paul has something to say on that. So he begins with this foundational statement. He says, we know. What do we know? The law is spiritual. And I'm of the flesh. 
and I'm sold as a slave under sin. So these are three big points. The law is spiritual, he's of the flesh, and he's a slave under sin. So he's kind of prepping us for what's yet to come. But first off, we see that the law is vindicated. We don't throw the law out because the law is actually of God. It has its origin from the Holy Spirit. So Paul contrasts the good nature of the law in one hand and his own sinful nature. He says he's of the flesh, a slave under sin. And so when he says that, he's pointing to his own twisted sinful desires, his self-centered nature. We can see from our own lives how sinful we are, how selfish we are, how deceitful our desires are. We don't have to look hard to see how greedy we are, how selfish we are, how just a couple days ago there was rage filling within me when I was trying to back out of a parking spot at the big Y. And so it doesn't take long for us to see how sinful we are. I've told people before, I have five children. I didn't have to teach any of them how to throw a temper tantrum. They didn't learn it from their mom either. And so they, they know how to sin. We know how to sin. Nobody has to teach us these things. So Paul talks about his own flesh, his own slavery under sin. Now some have wondered whether Paul is describing himself or someone else. I think, just my own opinion, that he's talking about himself. We see that in the following verses. They kind of end the debate. Verses 15 through 17. There's kind of like an inner dialogue that's happening here. Paul is going back and forth. He's, he's saying, the, do, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And he's going back and forth. You see this inner dialogue intensifying. It reminded me of a friend of mine, Russ, when, back when I was in youth group, long ago. He would say, I said to myself, self, you got to listen to the truth. Well, that's helpful. We have to listen to the truth. But the problem here is not that the truth is unknowable. The problem is that the truth is not being lived out. But we are not pointing fingers at Paul. We recognize ourselves in the mirror with Paul. We see ourselves. We scratch our heads. We pound our fists. And we sink in despair when we do what we hate. And we do not practice what we want to do. We say, there we go again. It's the same struggle. I had a seminary professor call them nagging sins. Those nagging sins that they would rear their ugly head, that they would continue time and again. So Paul understands that the law is spiritual and is good. But he also understands that he is bad. Really bad. Bad to the core. Now, we're not talking about boasting about being bad like Michael Jackson style. We're talking about being bad, which emphasizes the power and presence of sin within. We see the power and the presence of sin within us. Sin is a deadly three-letter word with I at the center. We see this to be the case. Charles Spurgeon, the late great Baptist preacher, had this to say about sin. He says, As the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does every sin affect every atom of our nature. 
It is so sadly there. It is so abundantly there that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. That's the case. We know our sin. The recognition of sin doesn't escape Paul's notice. He's aware of sin's presence. And then he goes on to talk about sin's power. So the first question was, what do we know? The second question is, where do we turn? You can see Paul talking about sin, the reality of sin, the presence of sin, the power of sin. Now he says, where do we turn? Well, not inward. We're not going to turn inward. Paul says, nothing good lives in me. Well, come on, Paul, you're being kind of rough here. You're you're being tough on yourself. Well, when he says nothing good lives in me, he's saying apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, I see sin. I see sickness. I see wickedness. And he sees his sinful actions and he sees the impact of it all. He's pointing out his sin. The law is not the problem. His parents aren't his problem. His environment aren't his problem. His circumstances aren't the problem. The fact that he hasn't had coffee in the morning, that's not the problem. The sin that lies within is his problem. He says he's got the desire to do what is good, but there is no ability to do it. So Paul is a divided man who's in great conflict. Some have wondered, is Paul talking about himself as a believer or as an unbeliever? Well, I think as a believer, but that gets us off on another side trail. That misses Paul's main point. The main point here is that the law can't save and that we are justified by faith. That's the main point here. The law can't save and that we are justified by faith. Romans 3 says, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. As Jesus even said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a pretty high bar. Again, how many of us are perfect? We all fall short. So this passage delineates the inability of the law to transform the human existence. When we look at the law, it does not transform us. So what does? What does transform us? What do we need? The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We must turn from our sins. I know you've heard this before, but it's good news. We must turn from our sins and turn to who? Christ. Turn to the one who rescues. Turn to the one who redeems by faith. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. We must turn from our sins and turn to Christ by faith. Again, from Romans 3, it says... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, as was read earlier, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So with the gospel, we see the grace of God found in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Without the gospel, we see our guilt and our every failure. Without the gospel... We're just going to sink in despair. With, listen to what Tim Keller has to say. He says, without the gospel, we hate ourselves instead of our sin. Without the gospel, we're motivated through all sorts of awful fear and pride to change it. And it doesn't really change our hearts. It just restrains our hearts. So without the gospel, we are like a sinking ship. 
But Paul knows that there is one who saves us. But he sees the problem of sin persisting. He says, I do not do the good that I want to do. He knows what is good. That's why I think he is a believer here. But he is practicing the evil and I do not want to do it. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is sin that lives in me. Now, he's, Paul's not saying, well, the devil made me do it because he sees his own sin. We can resonate with Paul and his aggravation with sin. We can slip on his shoes or sandals or Crocs and the uncomfortable feeling is all too comfortable. We can become complacent in our attitude towards sin. In fact, we can become attracted to sin like mosquitoes are to my legs at dusk. You know, just keep coming back for more and more. Our attraction and temptation to sin is like Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Pastor Cody was preaching on this just this past week at South Shore Baptist. And it's such a powerful chapter as we see the deception of sin. Sin crouches at the door of our hearts. We see it, but instead of ruling over it by the grace of God through the power of the Spirit, what do we do? We open the door and we allow our hearts to drift into the sea of despair. David Denham, he wrote a book on addictive habits called Changing for Good. In it, he outlines the struggle against sin and the battle within. Listen to what he says in one of the opening chapters. He says, in the aftermath of failure, it's usually easy to hate our sins. After you've given in to more cake, hey, I like cake, another drink, or succumb to the temptation to click on the link, feelings of guilt make it easy to hate your addiction. Given enough time, however, you will be attracted to it. Most of us both love and hate what we do. True change requires us to be honest about the love-hate relationship that we have with our various addictions. So we all know this temptation and this tension all too well. But maybe you or I, we are reluctant to confess our sin because after all, once we confess it, then it's out in the open. Then we are kind of inviting accountability And maybe we're not ready to change. But did you know that the sins that we once craved do not have to be the sins that keep us enslaved? We don't have to submit and turn and go back to sin like a dog to its vomit. We can find freedom. And so the Apostle Paul, he knows the power of sin, but he also knows the one who can free us from sin and its ugly consequences. The battle rages on in chapter 7, and Paul points us to life when death is about to consume. So you've heard enough about sin and sin in this chapter, but now let's turn to the third question. Who will deliver us? What do we know? We know that the law is spiritual. It is good, but it cannot save. Where do we turn? We can't turn inside. But who will deliver us? Jesus, the one who rescues, our rescuer, the Messiah himself. And so as Paul continues to talk about the relationship between law and sin, he recognizes that evil is right there. Evil is close at hand, and it will twist the truth. 
Sin has wrapped its thorns so tightly around human beings that it utilizes the law, takes the law, twists it, deceives the law for its selfish purposes. This is the unholy alliance in verses 22 and 23. Our minds become deceived when we begin to exchange the truth of God for the lies of the great enemy. R.C. Sproul describes this reality for us. He says, sin is not simply making bad choices or mistakes. Sin is having the desire in our hearts to do the will of the enemy of God. So sin describes our corrupt condition. It reminds us of the fall. It has affected us all. It reveals our scrapes and scars. But Paul brilliantly reminds us there is one who has suffered in our place. The one who knew no sin, who became sin on our behalf. The one who rescues us from the pit of destruction so that we might know of salvation. So let's read the last two verses of chapter 7 one more time. What does Paul say? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. They're like, well, where's the good news with that? He says, wretched man that I am. Well, this is not a moment of devastation, but this is a realization. Salvation comes not from within, but from the one who covers our sin. Jesus Christ is our rescuer. He's the answer. The question of verse 24 leads to adoration, leads to worship in verse 25, where Paul says, thanks be to God. I have hope. You have hope. There is a rescuer. There is a deliverer. There is one who has a lifeboat for us. He is the one who saves. This is why we sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Or from another one of my favorite songs. Jesus who suffered in my place. Jesus who bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. When we see the grace of God is not cherished. Sin continues to devastate. It's like a wildfire. From one to the next to the next. The fire gets bigger. But when God's grace is seen and savored, we will worship the God who rescues. We will worship the God who redeems. Here is the secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin. It's found in verse 25. It's to worship the God who made you. That's the secret. Worship the God who frees you. We must worship the king, see him as our generous and forgiving king, see his greatness, but also see the sweetness of his grace towards you. We are moved by what King Jesus has done on our behalf, that I am no longer enslaved to sin. So we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, made alive by Christ, and we see In chapter 7 and chapter 8, there is security in Christ. So how does this play out as we move to the end of this sermon? How does this play out? First, 
Know your identity. Know your identity. I'm reading a book right now about the three ways that we can see ourselves in Scripture. We see ourselves as sinner. We see that all the time. We see ourselves as sufferer. We all have suffered. But the one I don't think about a lot is as saint. As a saint. We are a sinner, a sufferer, but we are a saint. That means that I am God's child, that I am chosen, that I've been redeemed, that I am loved. So first, know your identity, that if you are God's child, if you are united to Christ by faith, know this. The verdict is in. You've been forgiven. You are forgiven in Christ. So this verdict removes our burden of sin and it drives our delight in God. So our motivation to obey is not based upon my ability or my performance, but what's it based on? My standing, my identity, the grace of God. For it's by grace you have been saved by faith. So we see first our identity. But not only do we focus on our identity, but we must highlight the good we see. Where is the Spirit at work? Oftentimes we are, we are looking for sin. We are on a, a hunt for idols. And not that that's bad all the time, but we need to be on a grace hunt. Where is the grace of God in our lives? We must be zealous to find evidences of God's grace. This morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, we were woken up by many runners running right past our house. It was the Hingham Road Race. And uh, I forgot to tell the kids, and they're like, what is going on? And, uh, you know, there's tons of people running by. And Susanna, our youngest, she thought it was funny that, that somebody else was cheering for them. and said, I see your hustle. Way to go. Good job. Keep it up. And she's like, they were going all in. They were all after this, this lady as she was running. But that's how we should be in the church. Cheering one another on. I see the grace of God in your life. I see how you're persevering. I see how you're not giving in to sin. I see patience when before you would have, you, the fuse would have been so small. There, there was no fuse. But I see God's patience. I see his kindness. I see joy when you would have sunk into despair. This is what we must do. We must be zealous to find evidence of God's grace. To cheer one another on. So believer, hear me when I say this. God is not done with you. In fact, he's just started. That's what Philippians says. He has just begun. So just as I said at the beginning of the sermon, it's hard to preach Romans without going to other parts of the book. So it's fitting that I read just two more verses from this beautiful letter. Let's read the next two verses after our passage. The beginning of chapter 8. Someone once said, if you want to summarize all the New Testament, read Romans 8. Starts this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Amen. We must rejoice in our rescuer. Rest in our rescuer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that... There is hope 
That we do not have to stay in our sin. That we do not have to remain in the muck and the mire with shame over our heads. But Father, we can be rescued. We can walk in forgiveness because of your grace. Because of your mercy. So Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is our hope. And Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who's not resting in Christ. I pray that they will turn to him today and find forgiveness and hope and everlasting life. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.